If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to read parts of this because it's a long narrative. Um, We're going to read the first 16 verses and then verses 32 to 50. But if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nate. I'm the, the lead pastor here, and we took, took a break from First Peter. We're looking at the, the person of David and how he points us to Jesus. And that's what we saw last week, um, that God is a good father, and he provides his children exactly what they need. And, and then no matter what chaos this fallen world throws at you, right, the answer we saw in the text was, God gives us Jesus. Uh, to cover our shame, and to fight the battles for us. We can never win on our own. And so this, today is just going to continue that theme. It's going to help us better read this text as we look at the famous story of David and Goliath. And I know some of you were, were at the Monday Thursday service, and, and we just talked about this. Um, today's a little different, <laughs> so don't worry. Uh, it's not a repeat, but it's still the same call to trust God's champion. And so let's, let's read the text. It's 1 Samuel 17, uh, the first 16 verses, and again down in verses 32 to 50. But this is God's word. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And they came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted out to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And then down to verse 32. 
And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb for the flock, I went after him and struck him, struck him down and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come with, to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose, arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He has spoken to us today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have promised, you have sworn by yourself to provide for us, to protect us, in Jesus to pray for us and to fight for us because we are your children. And so I pray you give us eyes and ears to see that today, to hear that good news of the gospel that we have Jesus, uh, our, our champion, um, our king, who covers us with your grace like a shield. And so may those glimpses, uh, the, that clear gospel vision, cause us to rise up, um, to be a people of courage, to grow in confidence, to be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, loving you and loving our neighbor. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.
I know we, as Americans, we love our underdog stories, don't we? Um, we love to compare things, right? If the underdog is David going up against the Goliath, I mean, you can think of the, the 1980 famous hockey match, right? When the USA, untested, young, unknown, went up against the, the Goliath Russian team, uh, no one expected them to get to the gold medal, much less um, score two goals in the third period uh, to lead the USA to, to, to gold, to, to the stories of legend, right? I mean, it's that famous line, do you believe in miracles when they won? Right? It's, it's just part of how we think. It's part of our DNA as Americans, right? It's part of the history we use to inspire. I mean, here's Hamilton, outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. And as, as you think about this, right, it was a band of weary, worn out, frostbit, often barefoot, courageous soldiers under George Washington that took on the British Empire. And here we are, <laughs> right? It's part of the, the, the mythos, the story, right? The underdogs win. And so it's not surprising when, when you come to David and Goliath that that's, what, that's our natural bent. We want to identify with David, the underdog. We want to see ourselves going up against uh, the Goliaths in our lives, and we want to survive, to thrive, to conquer like David. And that's often how this text is taught, that, that the purpose of David and Goliath is to inspire us to rise up with David-like courage uh, to face the Goliaths in our lives armed with five stones, right? The, the, the stones of faith, trust, courage, obedience, and praise, or whatever names people throw out there, because you too can slay the giants in your life. All right, I mean... I went to Amazon to go see what people were saying, right? It's a good, good place. What kind of books are out there? Here's Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called David and Goliath a few years ago, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And here's what he says. This is a book about when ordinary people confront giants. And by giants, I mean powerful opponents of all kinds, mighty armies, warriors, all the way down to disability, misfortune, and oppression. Because the fact, the act of facing overwhelming odds, that's what produces greatness and beauty. All right? Not a Christian, per se. But it's, the next one down the line was by a book called Goliath Must Fall, Winning the Battles Against Your Giants by Louis Giglio. Giglio? I'm not sure how you say his name. The passion guy. Um, <laughs> right? So he's just another well-known Christian teacher, right? This is what the story is teaching you, how to rise up in courage to be like David. Uh, you can see it, Facing the Giants. It's a movie, a really preachy movie, but it's a movie. Right? And the Giants are a bad football team, <laughs> infertility and poverty. And the message is, if you believe, if you pray, if you trust, you too can face your Giants. Right? And so here's the irony, and uh, this is, I'm hoping to just keep pushing this uh, idea that that's not the point of the text. Right, if you read the David and Goliath story as the goal of being like David, you know who you will become more like? You're not going to become like David. You're going to be more like Goliath. <laughs> right? Boastful, confident in yourself, constantly looking inward instead of outward, trying to manufacture courage and strength on your own. Basically, it makes God the play actor to your story towards greatness rather than him being the author of your salvation, which is what the story is calling us to see. Right? I mean, 
Here's one, I'm warning you, this hurts, but this is a really pointed uh, comment I heard from another pastor where he said, why do we still say we like the little guy? We want our movies to be like David, to be about David, but we spend our lives desperately hard trying to be Goliath. We think it's quaint and clever that David got by with five smooth stones and a sling, but we spend our own energies stockpiling swords, spears, and javelins. We admire the fact that David forswore King Saul's shield and gadgetry, but just look at our car. Look at our house. Look at our country. Look at the many ways we beef them up to look like Goliath. With so many safety and security features, we can hardly move around. It's it's his fancy way of saying we hate weakness. (laughs) And so... This is about courage, and you will gain courage as you see what, what God shows us here in this text, but it's, it's about looking outside of ourselves to see the one whom God has provided for us. I mean, context is what's really helpful here, right? Because one, it starts in chapter two where God says, it's a prayer with Hannah saying, may the Lord provide strength for his anointed and his king, right? So Samuel's all about God's king. And then chapter 16, we looked at last week, I have provided for myself a king in Israel. Right? The king that Israel wanted in chapter 8 to go out and fight their battles for them because they knew they were helpless and weak in a large, scary world. And so the David and Goliath story is just continuing that theme. It's saying, look at the one God has provided, his king, his anointed to fight the battles we cannot fight and win on our own because we're afraid, right? I mean, look at the text. You've got two armies, right? Israel on one mountain, the Philistines on the other, and there's a valley in between, and you've got Goliath, and it's just one of the longest uh, detailed pictures of someone's clothing and, and armor in the whole Bible. I mean, he's, this, he's at least eight foot tall, He's walking around with 126 pounds of armor, right? I mean, I get tired. My COVID-15 wore me out. (laughs) He's walking around with 126 pounds of armor. He's equipped with the best of the best military technology. He's full of scorn and mockery because he's completely reliant on his technology to keep him safe. And he sets himself up, right? I'm the champion. If, if an Israelite will come down and face me in battle, we will be your servants. And if I defeat your champion, you shall be our servants and serve us. I mean, he is this guy that looks invincible, undefeatable. It's part of this ancient practice to limit bloodshed. Two champions going head to head, right? The winner takes all. How does everyone respond? Right? David goes down alone. From King Saul in verse 11 down to every Israelite soldier, they're paralyzed by fear. Nobody got the message when God says repeatedly, don't pay attention to their height, to outward appearance. (laughs) They look at Goliath, they hear his words, they have no idea how they can get through this. They're terrified. Right? I mean, and they're... There may be a Hebrew pun in verse 11 because the word for greatly and for strong are the same. Uh, It's ma'od. And so instead of this army, the armies of the living God being strong in battle, they're ma'od afraid. (laughs) All their strength is 
poured into their fear. They're quaking in their boots. Right? And that's the portrait of the church. <laughs> that's the portrait of God's people. And so the question is, is how do we, who are like fearful Israel, get moved from our very real, present tense, paralyzing fear to faith-filled courage to follow the one God provided? And so that's what the text is going to show us today. It's going to show us how we are paralyzed. It's going to show us how we're fought for and how we're freed. And so let's look at how we are paralyzed by appearances. All right, what did you walk into this room afraid of? All right, afraid of failure, um, afraid of death. I mean, I think it's fair to say you get the, at the root of all of our fears is a fear of death. Right. You know, that pressure, like the weight of the world, of your world, is on your shoulders and you don't know if you can handle it. I mean, verse 11 describes what Israel feels like. They're dismayed, they're discouraged, as in you look around and you're too afraid to try because all you can visualize is your own demise. Right. And you also notice there's no mention of God in this story at all until you get to verse 26 when David speaks. Which is exactly how anxiety works. Right? It's godless. We, we, we don't speak God into the conversation. I mean, that's what Saul and Israel are doing. It's so human, right? I'm anxious because I feel forgotten. I feel like I'm alone, like I'm all on my own. It's all on me. I don't have a father. I'm, gonna act, I'm an orphan. I have no help. I got to do this, and because I know myself and I know my weakness, I may approach the battle, <laughs> but then I turn around and run. Right? It's a paralyzing place to be. It's, it's, I'm on my own. God is distant. I have to figure this out. Right? That's, that's Israel. That's Saul. They're paralyzed by fear and discouragement. It's like being, it's like being a wilted plant in the desert trying to grow in the desert heat, right? Just wilted. No hope. Right? And so as the story goes on, what's so brilliant, right? Everybody's included. If you remember last week, we, we learned about Eliab and Abinadab and Shema, and they all look like better king options than David. And you notice the story brings them up again. These guys are following Saul, but they're also acting like Saul, <laughs> terrified and afraid. And this taunting goes on for 40 days, morning and night. 40 days of discouragement. It's a good picture of depression, trapped. Uh, 40 days of, I should be able to do this. I should trust God, but I can't. It's 40 days of Goliath saying, what's wrong with you? Somebody rise up to the occasion. It's 40 days of somebody just saying, I should be able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And then shrinking back in fear. It's 40 days of silence, no mention of God's name. Right? 40 in the Bible, in general, is the number of testing. Right? Where, you know, Israel's in the desert for 40 years, Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. It's this portrait of when God takes his people into a place of testing, it's to humble them, for one, because they get to know themselves, get to see it, what they're really like. And in, in the words of Deuteronomy 8, it's testing them to see what is in their hearts. Samuel follows, the, this is prophetic history, it's following that, 
that train of thought. What is in the hearts of God's people? Fear. Right? The living God who is active is forgotten and ignored. That's what fear does. That's what anxiety does. Right, so as we diagnose how we f- deal with this fear of failure and fear of death, I mean, this is one way we deal with it. We, we live like orphans, as if God isn't the living God, as if he isn't a father who promises to provide exactly what we need, as if we're not seen. That's one way. A second way of dealing with it is the Goliath method, and it's also a, a godless method. Right? And I think this is probably more, this, this is us. Because right, if you look at Goliath, the first thing you're told about him in extensive details is the lengths he has gone to protect himself with the best of the best. Right? He's taken all that technology and money can give him. Say, you know, he's, he's in a bronze bubble. Right? He's, he's the, the, the Philistine bubble boy <laughs> trying to protect himself. All right? 126 pounds of armor. He's got his spearhead alone right? weighs 20 pounds. Just imagine trying to throw that across the room. I mean, he has done everything he can to insulate himself from danger, even as he wears this fearless mask while hiding behind the best of technology to protect himself. I mean, that's what you do when you go to war, right? But he, too, is living by appearances. He looks at himself. He looks at his size. He looks at his height. He looks at his strength. He says, I got this. Of course, we know the end of the story. It's, it's misplaced confidence because in verse 42, when the Philistines, it says, when he saw David, ah, you're weak. He disdained him. All right? And he says to David, are you a dog that you come to me with sticks? And then, he, then he, he visualizes his victory when he says, come to me and I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All right? So Goliath, this is what he does. He arms himself with the best of the best of human technology, and then he tells himself a story. He visualizes his own success. He boasts in his own abilities, even as he pictures David being destroyed. He's boasting. This is how we deal with anxiety. We boast. We've got to fill our ego to say, I got this. And I'm, I'm... I'm assuming nobody said that to anyone else in this room, right? I'm going to feed your flesh to the beasts of the earth. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great line maybe when you're playing video games. No, but we, we visualize the win. There's a modern way to do this. We play all the scenarios out in your head. I know I'm not the only one who does this, right? If you're going to face uh, an intimidating conversation, you replay the conversation ahead of time where you always emerge the victor. Right? You, you look at your abilities, your strength, your past victories, and say, well, I got this, right? which works great until reality hits you in the old foreknoggin, as Jonah would put it. <laughs> reality hits you in the head. See, Israel, Goliath, us, when it comes to fear, fear of failure and death, the pro- our ba- most basic problem is we're out of touch with reality. We find ourselves out of touch reality. Israel, they're ignoring their good, heavenly father-filled reality that they have a God who has identified with them and sworn to protect and provide for them. All they can do is look out at the world and say, I'm alone. That's their unbelief. 
Goliath also ignores the God-filled, God-created, Heavenly Father reality. He ignores the fact that God is a God of justice who's promised to bless Israel. He doesn't believe there's a God who hates evil, who abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful, as we read in the call to worship this morning, in whose presence no one boastful may stand. Goliath, he ignored and overlooked the living God. He's ignoring reality. And so the question for us this morning is, I don't know what fears are paralyzing you, but how do you deal when your fears are grounded in reality and they can penetrate that armor of fearlessness that we have all erected for ourselves? Fear of failure. You've got to take that step forward and you don't know if you can do it because you know your own weakness. Fear of death, right? What happens when that phone call comes that, that changes everything? Or when you publicly failed and you can no longer pretend to be strong, right? See, visualizing success as a short-term solution, it doesn't Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't work, and that's the whole point of this prophetic passage, is that God provides what you need when you are afraid. You can't do it on your own. All right, Goliath's manufactured courage and self-trust and ended with a, a rock to his forehead. Right? It's a dead end. Israel's unbelief, their, their vision, crippled them. So the question is, if they're seeing incorrectly, if they're not seeing reality as it is, as God-filled, what must we see? And, and this is the second point. You have to see that you're fought for. And this is what's so good about the text is you get to see one. David says, right, the battle belongs to the Lord. You are fought for. The Lord has provided for himself a champion, a king. David, that's who he is. Right? So... What does God give is fear-filled, faithless, weak-kneed people who have absolutely bombed the courage test for 40 days. I send you a champion, a king to fight for you. That's the point of the text. David isn't an example to emulate and imitate. He's their hero. He's their, their savior, their warrior king, their, their captain. Their champion who fights the battles they can't win because, because of the power of their unbelief. Right? David's faith comes in and covers the shame of their unbelief, their weakness, and anxiety. Do you see that? David's the only one who believes in the whole story. Right? So what do we learn about that? Well, David is grounded in a God-soaked God is present and active and helping kind of reality. Right? The very first time in the whole story that you hear David speak is in verse 26. And you get an idea of what he's like, where he says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, the accusations, or the shame of Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's the first time God is mentioned. And he says, hey, guys, there's a living God who identifies with you, his army. Right? There's a living God, living and active, who fights and loves his people. Right? 
And this is how our minds work, right? We feel like we're on our own until someone like David comes into our, into our space and speaks the reality of God to us. Right? Do you have someone like that in your life? <laughs> someone who says, do you know your heavenly Father has promised to provide for you? Do you see his provision? Do you see that he sees you right now? See, David has shown up as the champion. He's inserting some good news sanity into their heads. He's helping them see, saying, look, this guy has mocked the ranks of the living God, which means he has God to deal with. I mean, just think about the audacity of that statement. God has amassed an army of cowards. (laughs) God has aligned his reputation in the world with the paralyzed, wimpy army of Israel. And that's enough, because God has promised to fight for them. See, Goliath isn't just insulting and sneering and looking down at Israel. He's mocking, sneering, and defying the living God. And, and so David, when he's, he's doing this, this is uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he's, he's saying, look, do you really think God's going to let those insults go? That's what David's implying here. Do you really think God is indifferent to your suffering, to your needs right now? Do you really think he doesn't notice that you're paralyzed by fear? See, David is speaking truth to their fears. And second, when David goes to fight, all right, just because he's God's champion doesn't mean he's going to fight the way Goliath fights. David wins because of weakness. Right? And so you can run through the story. Everybody's mocking and looking down at David. I mean, Eliab, the typical older brother looking at the youngest, it says, what are you doing here? <laughs> I know the evil in your heart. You just, want, you just want to see the spectacle of battle. You should be back with your sheep. See, in order for David to fight for God's people, he has to overcome the mocking of his brothers. Hold on to that thought. That sounds like Jesus. Saul, when David comes into the tent and says, ah, don't worry about him, I got this. <laughs> he looks at David, Saul looks at David the same way as Goliath does. Who are you? You're just a youth. Goliath has been a man of war since he was a young boy. You have no chance. You have no experience. And David says, well, God's fought for me in the past, so why would he not fight for me now? Goliath looks at David and says, "Ah, you're a nobody. You're weak. You're young. You're a shepherd. I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds. So what you're supposed to see is not only is David God's champion, he's God's champion who's willing to endure the shame of weakness, willing to be mocked, in order to deliver God's people from their fear of death by trusting God for them while being weak. Do you see that? All right, I mean, this is the whole point of the text. Notice it's not about the battle. (laughs) We want to make it about the battle, but the the speech, even David, David knows how to trash talk, right? His speech is about God is longer than the actual battle. It's two lines, right? Verse 45, David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the armies of the Philistines 
to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly, that's us, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle belongs to the Lord. And then you have the battle, right? It's just two lines. They run at each other. Boom, rock, head, dead. Sword comes out. And then everyone's filled with courage. Right? See, Israel, <laughs> the frightened army of the living God, when they see that they are fought for, that's what gives them courage. When they see their enemy of death defeated by Goliath, then they run into battle. Then they follow God's champion. Then they rise up as conquerors. This is the point. It's the victory of God's champion who believed for them, whose grace covered their shame, who fought for them. That's what set Israel free from their slavery to fear of failure and death. Because his victory showed them, hey, God is here. He's fought for me. So what do we pull out of this as Christians? It's not hard to see the Jesus parallels. Jesus, the son of David, the better David, God's chosen champion, the one who saves us through weakness. This is the one God has provided to fight for you. Matthew 121, Mary... Or Joseph is told, Mary is going to be pregnant, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He will fight for them. But for Jesus to fight for us, he had to endure the shame of being God's weak champion. Like David, he was rejected by his family and his brothers. They thought he was nuts. They, they said, he's out of his mind. We've got to take him, down, take him home. But also like David, Jesus was constantly communicating to everyone around him, hey, you live in a heavenly father-soaked reality. Right? Think of the things Jesus said. You anxious people, don't you know you are more valuable to your father in heaven than the birds? The birds who don't store anything away, and yet their father feeds them? Or you who, who feel like you're too far away because you've blown it too much, don't you know what your father is like? He's the kind of guy who's going to leave the 99 sheep behind just to find the one sheep who wandered off? His eyes are on you? Right? Don't you know your father loves to give good gifts to those who ask? Right? If you then who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father provide exactly what you need? So ask the Spirit. Ask for more of the Spirit. Right? Jesus was soaked in this reality. He constantly was pointing, look at the living God. He's your Father. But it's that same Jesus who ended up on the cross in weakness. That's how he fights. This is how he's different than David, right? Nobody watching Jesus hang on that tree for our sins, for our weakness, uh, going to battle against death for us. Nobody thought that was a victory. Nobody. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. And then we'll believe in him. If he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if God wants him. 
See, David, Jesus did so much more than David because David just risked his life to fight for us. Jesus was swallowed up by death in order to save us from death. That, that's what goes to war against your fears. There was a book I had to read in seminary, uh, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ by John Owen. It's written in Latin and translated in English, so it's very slow. <laughs> but just listen to that title, The Death of Death in the death of Christ. Because death is defeated and died in Christ. That means victory for every single person who believes in him. Jesus' call to follow him comes through the power of the resurrection that by faith, because I've won this battle, you could not win against death. You've already conquered in me. Death is like falling asleep in the New Testament. It's just like a nap. And when you close your eyes, you wake up on the other side, and you're going to see your father. You're going to see Jesus still holding on to you. And this is, this is where this text takes us. See, Jesus is God's mocked, weak, Holy Spirit-filled champion whose resurrection from the dead empowers us to endure the shame of our weakness as he did for us, and then take that risk of faith and go wherever he leads, even if it means not being safe. That's what the whole point of the resurrection is showing you, that you have a champion who fought for you, that should the very worst happen, you're safe. The resurrection of Jesus sets us free from our lifelong slavery to fear of death. All right, and that's what's so amazing here is just as David had no sword, how did he win the day? He used, he used the weapon of the enemy. He used the very weapons that were causing soul-crushing fear to defeat Goliath. And, but it wasn't his. So too, Jesus uses the borrowed weapon of Satan who controls us through fear of death. Jesus uses death to defeat death to conquer our fears. All to show you that you're not alone. (laughs) That's the whole point. If God sent this person into real space and real time, as the Gospels tell us, it's showing you that there really is, in reality, a Heavenly Father who loves you, sees your need, and meets you where you're at. And so what do you do with your anxieties? And this is you got to see Jesus as the Christus Victor. That's the Latin phrase would put it. The, the one who fought for you. And you got to, rather than letting your anxieties speak to you, which is what they do with all the what-ifs of how this whole thing is going to go down in flames. No, you need to speak to your anxieties as, as the scriptures tell us to do. You are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved you in his death. All right. You need to speak to your anxieties. And this is my, my challenge for you to, to, to meditate on, because I don't know what, it, what you, exactly you are afraid of, but what would faith-filled courage look like as you rise up and follow Jesus into battle? Right. What kind of failure do you need to risk? What kind of risks do you need to take because you believe that the resurrection is true? Right. If you fail... Jesus' resurrection speaks a better word. You're justified forever. 
Right? If you die, Jesus' resurrection speaks a better word. And so it's, it's not about the speed in which you travel, as Calvin would say. It's the direction in which you go. So this isn't saying you need to run out full speed and do something foolish. It's saying take a step further than you would normally go outside of your comfort zone. But we're called to see our champion. On with this, right? There's a great scene in the movie The Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams. I don't know if you've, you've seen that where Williams is an English teacher who, who loves these high school students and he's trying to form their, their moral imagination, right? To stand up for what's right. And of course, at the end of the film, Williams is getting fired for pushing against the culture and that's where they find, his students find their courage because they're seeing their teacher go down in flames fighting for what is right. And so it's a great scene at the end where the students stand up on their desks and they look uh, in love at their teacher and they just, you know, oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> it's inspiring, right? If you're at home, you can stand on your own desk. Um, but it's quoting Walt Whitman. It's about the captain of a ship who, in love, died for his crewmates, right? And it says, oh, captain, my, oh, my captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But heart, oh heart, heart, oh the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies falling cold and dead. That's what these boys are remembering. Right? They're seeing their captain fight for them, go down in flames. And that gives them courage to rise up. And if that is true and just a basic sense of the word, if someone who suffers to give high school students courage, how much more for us as Christians? Right? You've seen Christ defang death itself, putting death to death by his own death. He's risen up victorious calling us to look at Jesus and say, oh, captain, my king, though the world does, goes not well, I trust you because I follow the living God and look at who he has provided for me. Speak to your fears. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the good news of this story that you see us, you see our weakness, you see our unbelief, and you, you sent us Jesus. And so I pray that that your spirit would bind these Holy Spirit words and, and, and that we would see with the eyes of our hearts Christ crucified for us, uh, Christ risen, and that would fill us with courage, that we would be strong and courageous because we know you are with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.